0: in the name of God who is creating, redeeming, sustaining. Amen. I have spoken previously about being Christian during an election. And I'd like to speak with you this morning about being Christian after an election. So I want to invite us to think theologically about the role of our church, this one, on the corner of West Peachtree and North Avenue in Atlanta, which situates us at the center of the political universe for the next 24 days. I'd like to tell you a couple of vignettes from my story in the hopes that you will hear part of yours in the telling. Story number one. You will not be surprised to know that I'm pretty progressive, and so are most of my friends and neighbors, So are most of the people with whom I engage on social media. I have experienced what journalist Bill Bishop calls the big sort. Have you experienced some of this? I don't hear much from people who disagree with me, from people who hold opposing views. And the author of this book, Bill Bishop, says this is actually one of the trends he identifies as tearing our country apart, as creating part of the incredible divide that we experience So at Oberlin College in Ohio, I got really involved in the elections. In the heat of the bush Kerry campaign, I was at lunch with friends from church, John and Ruth Mercer. Hello, John and Ruth, watching online. This couple was wise and generous, often hosting college students for lunch. They were teachers at the local high school, and they kept that church going when few others would. They were the volunteer on Saturday type, you know? And I got to talking about the election and I said, man, I do not know a smart, kind Republican. They may be out there, but I don't know one. And John said, yes, you do. And it won't surprise you to learn that I missed his cue, completely. I just rambled on. I had all kinds of assumptions to make, not just about how people voted, but about who they were as people. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever heard those kinds of tropes online or on TV? Owning the libs and snowflakes and mega-fascists and all all the the names that we call each other, right? Well, I was on a troll roll. I said all kinds of disparaging, self-righteous, and if I may so myself, very funny things about how the state of the nation, and indeed the world, hung on this election, and this was 2004. And John stopped me and said, yes, you do. You know a smart and kind Republican. He's buying your lunch right now. <laughs> oh, no. I, was, I am so sorry. I said, I pulled hard on my leg to extract the foot, which was firmly entrenched in my mouth. I felt so embarrassed and so rude. I tried to walk it back. I hemmed and I hawed and... John was incredibly gracious. He was a high school teacher, so he had seen this before. He said, Apology accepted, just remember this for the future. You do know smart and you do know kind Republicans. You go to church with them. And the lesson I took from that lunch, which I still remember as if it happened this morning, is that elections are going to come and elections are going to go. We still have the honor, joy, privilege, and opportunity to live together. So thinking theologically, God loves John and Ruth just as much as me and as my Democrat friends, and we can disagree without being disagreeable. We can hold our views and vote our conscience, and we should, without assuming that others who disagree are monsters and trash and otherwise irredeemable humans. But that's a countercultural move, especially right now. That's something that church can be about proclaiming that God loves the whole world, no exceptions, especially after an election. Story number two. This one's harder to tell. So I started work at the Washington National Cathedral exactly two months before Trump won the White House. The night he won, I did not sleep. And so you can imagine the mixed emotions when a few days later, our choir, which included elementary boys and high school girls, was asked to sing for his inauguration. I was chaplain to those choristers, so I actually know the chants that you guys sing. I I sang with them, and I, I came on their trips with them, and I spent a lot of time with them. And I felt morally obligated to be present with them from the Capitol dais. And I want to say that none of our other clergy, and there were six of us, felt that it would be appropriate for them to be at the inauguration. But I was there. And so from the Capitol dais, I watched some of the people that I most respected, including senators like John McCain and Roy Blunt, all of us sitting behind six-inch bulletproof glass. I saw people like John John McCain and Roy Blunt attend the peaceful transition of power. I watched Barack and Michelle Obama shake hands with Donald and Melania Trump, extending them every courtesy and listening politely while the new president spoke. We sat right behind the podium and what we didn't realize until right then and there was that you could see us just past the president's shoulder in the same television frame. So as the world watched on TV, we were right there behind him. And I wore my collar And my social media feed exploded. I heard from people all over the country. How could you be there? What were you thinking? You have discredited your role as a priest. You just gave him moral cover. It went on. And I did not take it well. By doing that, we had managed to infuriate the entire liberal wing of the Episcopal Church. My people, the people I had gotten sorted into, the ones I agreed with, and they came for me and for my friends and for the kids that i was responsible for and it was actually a moment of crisis it was i did not take it well i was on the receiving end of the rage machine and it wasn't from the loudest pundits the one with the plastic blown hair it's from my friends from my family from my college chaplain and more and they were some of the hardest days i've ever experienced professionally But along the way, especially after the inauguration and the prayer service, we discerned, kind of as we were living into it, an incredibly uncomfortable role for the church, but one that our dean, Randy Hollerth, courageously identified for us. We felt called to be and to live into being a house of prayer for all people, a place where our nation, our community might come together, a place to try and bind up our wounds, to repair breaches, to gather, call, center, and send God's people, to speak gospel truths indeed, to be a prophetic voice for certain, but also to be a place that reminded us all that we are beautiful and wonderful and full recipients of God's grace. Friends, you are beautiful and wonderful. God loves you, and you are worthy of God's grace. And that didn't mean, and it does not mean, that we can't contest lies, or speak against corruption, or protest voter suppression and call for unanimous voting rights for everyone, or call every politician, including the president, to accept the will of the people when they lose. If you can't accept the results of an election, you have no business running in it. Or to preach prophetic gospel values, honoring the poor and the immigrant and the stranger. But it did mean that we tried really hard to tone down the rhetoric, to take down the temperature, to make a point of proclaiming God's love and grace across difference, including across political difference, and to remind our community of the work that God has for us to do. Just before this midterm election, the cathedral ran a preaching series on Micah 6:8, and I commend it to you. There was a beautiful sermon on kindness... A sermon on justice. A sermon on walking humbly with God. And they just held by far the most successful fundraising campaign in their history, raising $115 million toward a $150 million goal. I think they're on to something. I think they've discerned a clear and important need. And who would have thought it would be important to say, even courageous to say, but here we are, our country needs places where we can come together and love each other. Our community needs places where we can come together and love each other. We need centers of reconciliation, places where we can practice the fruits of the Spirit that Paul describes in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's an old-fashioned view of church, but it is also wise. In this church, the person who makes the banner for your child's baptism or sings in the choir or welcomes you at the door or greets you at the peace or teaches your child in Sunday school or brings you flowers when you're sick or sings beautifully next to you or can't even vote yet but still leads worship, thanks be to God, As a chorister or as an acolyte or as a youth reader, that person probably disagrees with you about something important. Probably, at least one time in their life, they voted differently than you did. Probably wants different judges than you and I do. And yet, here we all are. Good morning. So, how are we called to be Christians after an election? I think, in particular, God invites us into the ministry of reconciliation. And how might we do that? I think we can start by remembering God's love, to seek forgiveness for our own sins of discord and division, and to seek to be voices of reason and calm, peace and reconciliation. Part of reconciliation means rebuilding trust. We are called to tell the truth to counter lies, and to rebuild a common sense of truth. There used to be such a thing as commonly shared truth, and there can be again. We can lower the temperature of our own rhetoric. We can make it unprofitable and unacceptable to attack, belittle, demean, and lie. We can simply change the channel, delete the app, unfollow the thread. Turns out that advertisers which create the the profitable ways of doing communication they're watching like hawks and they heed what we do just look at twitter over the past two weeks we also have a role in shoring up the foundations of our democracy this critical work needs our best thinkers across the political spectrum and it is a project that will demand great things of us all for many years to come indeed we need respectful debate and two healthy parties. So let's vote our consciences on December 6th and in the early voting before then. Let's vote, let's all commit to being the kind of church where all are welcome, where neighborliness is a way of life, where we can see and know that God loves us all, even the Democrats, even the Republicans, even the Stacey Abrams voters, even the Brian Kemp voters, even the Herschel Walker voters, even the Raphael Warnock voters, God loves each and every one of us equally and without exception. And so the Sunday after the election, let's make a date. Let's meet here, and let's go to God's table so that we can break bread together on our knees. Amen.